This is the 10,000 Depositions Later podcast, episode 103. I'm Jim Garrity. Today's episode, Lessons from the Front Lines. What will 317 I don't knows and 196 I don't remembers by your client? Hint, it involves jurors. Hey everybody, I hope you're doing well and as always, having a great week. This is a Lessons from the Front Lines episode. As you know, these episodes focus on brand new deposition-related court rulings in pending cases from around the country. So keep in mind that the 107-page ruling uh, in the spotlight today, issued just three days ago, could still be withdrawn, modified, appealed, or otherwise changed in some way. But the ruling in the case, Lumen versus Diaz, illustrates the problems that can arise when litigators let a deposition of their own client or witness come to a conclusion without follow-up examination when the client or witness has repeatedly answered an opponent's questions by saying, I don't know and I don't remember, or letting the deposition come to a conclusion when the client or witness has otherwise answered in good faith but given materially inaccurate or incomplete answers. In the Lumen case, the court struck portions of the defendant's affidavit in support of summary judgment and further struck an expert report submitted by that defendant, which purported to explain the defendant's motives and actions when the defendant himself had left gaps on those issues by claiming in his deposition that he just couldn't remember. Not your typical expert report, but again, struck by the judge. You know, if your client or deponent did not score a 10 out of 10 in his or her deposition, there's always the errata sheet or a later affidavit or declaration uh, that you can use as a kind of putty or spackle for you home improvement experts to fill in minor holes. But if the deponent's later testimonial add-ons, so to speak, are in the nature of suddenly complete recollections or qualifications that limit or nullify prior testimony, or even new material facts, uh, the results will generally be in order striking the supplements to the deposition and sending the case to trial, or worse, out the door entirely on summary judgment. And that should never happen when the testimony can be corrected by the litigator while the deposition is still in progress. On that note, I see enough litigators rushing their client out of the deposition room the moment the examining lawyer says no further questions to know that many lawyers have been taught to get their client out of the room to not ask a single follow-up question because of the perceived risk that it will open the proverbial can of worms, the proverbial Pandora's box, or will create a Gordian knot, uh, all terms or metaphors for a messy situation. Footnote. I love Gordian knot as a metaphor for a problem that's very difficult to solve, as in trying to untie an impossibly tangled knot. It makes me sound a little bit smarter than if I tell the judge we're about to open a can of worms. I won't digress too long, but I wanted to share that story about the Gordian knot and how it arose from an ancient kingdom in what is now Turkey. Greek mythology holds that Gordius, the king, tied an ox cart to a post with an insanely intricate knot, supposedly so entangled that it was impossible to see how it was tied uh, in the first place. It was then declared that whoever could unravel it 
would become the ruler of all of Asia. Uh, the story goes, Alexander the Great came along, allegedly could not figure out how quite to untie the knot, and then simply drew his sword and cut the knot open. Problem solved, kingdom has a new ruler. And you know, when I first read that, it reminded me of a scene from one of the Indiana Jones movies, where if you remember it, the hero is confronted with a gentleman that was quite proficient with his whip, and he was demonstrating how he was about to put a hurting on Indiana Jones. In that scene, uh, Jones, watching his enemy doing all kinds of fancy moves with the whip, then comes up with his own Alexander the Great-style practical solution for getting past the guy, and the movie moves on. All right, back to the issue at hand. It's true that asking follow-up questions without a purpose or strategy can create issues all its own. It can give the examining lawyer an opportunity to ask additional questions that they probably immediately regretted not asking before they said no further questions. And it can also allow an examining lawyer an opportunity to follow up on your cross and maybe inflict some additional wounds that wouldn't have been inflicted if you had, as many litigators do, simply fled the scene client in tow. But if your client's memories are easily recalled with some appropriate prep ahead of time, or during the deposition with some appropriate prodding, perhaps with the use of some documents, it's generally a much better solution to do it on the record. While the witness is still exposed to cross-examination, and while his testimony can still be tested by the adversary. So here's the practice tip. Courts are far more likely to credit clarifying testimony given in the deposition itself than testimony that gets stapled to the back of the deposition or that gets filed in support of or opposition to dispositive motions. If your client has to correct errors in his or her testimony, it's always better to do it immediately certainly almost always better. Courts react far more favorably if the corrections are part of the deposition itself and if the examining lawyer has had their fair shot at your client or deponent to ask about any changes or improved recollections in testimony during your cross. So let's talk about the case uh, at issue today, Lumen versus Diaz. In this case, Lumen and other law enforcement officers are suing because it's a current pending case uh, among others, their former employer, Christopher Diaz, who was a county constable in Texas. Think of kind of like a sheriff in many jurisdictions. The plaintiff law enforcement officers allege that after Diaz was elected, he required employees to work on his campaign and punished those who either wouldn't work on his next campaign or who worked for opposition candidates. Very common scenario uh, that you'll see pop up in the case law involving elected officials. The alleged retaliatory acts claimed by the plaintiffs included discipline, involuntary transfers, demotions, terminations, and denials of opportunities for further advancement. So the plaintiffs depose Constable Diaz, and they say in their court filings that he answered, I don't know, 317 times, and I don't remember, 196 times, for a total of 513 allegedly non-responsive answers to critical questions about his own actions and motives that were at issue in the case. Diaz's memory failures came uh, to the court's attention when, in support of summary judgment, he filed a declaration that seemed to show remarkable improvements in his memory 
on many critical points in the lawsuit. On top of that, as I mentioned at the outset of this episode, Diaz's expert submitted a report that somewhat oddly purported to offer factual explanations for Diaz's actions that Diaz himself claimed he had no memory of. So the expert is in effect saying to the judge, well, here's why he did some of these things, even though Diaz himself had nothing to say on those points when he was being examined in his deposition. It was almost as if the expert was functioning as a memory chip for the sheriff. So a little unusual. In any event, uh, the plaintiffs in responding to summary judgment moved to, to strike Diaz's post-deposition declaration and the expert report that purported to fill in the gaps in Diaz's own testimony about his motives and actions. And here's what the court said, quote, while the court agrees that at times a declaration can supplement information that a deponent may simply not recall during a deposition, it's improper to simply fail to answer questions at a deposition, thus not providing the deposing party an opportunity to explore your responses, and then come up with answers in a declaration after the fact. The court understands Diaz's complaint that the plaintiffs did not provide documents during the deposition to jog Diaz's memory. But in most cases, the plaintiffs did not receive any written notification when they were transferred or when other adverse employment actions were taken, so there were no documents to show. The court pointed out Diaz does not argue that he had inadequate time to prepare for the deposition, and certainly he knew what each plaintiff's complaint was in advance and could have prepared for the deposition. Close quote. Then the court turned next to the defense effort to rely on cases saying that it's okay to supplement or clarify deposition testimony, if that's all you're doing, with a subsequent affidavit or declaration. And the court responds, well, those kinds of supplements or clarifications are, quote, significantly different than a defendant who does not know or cannot remember more than 400 times in one deposition and then has reasons for most of the formerly forgotten or unknown material in a later filed declaration. The plaintiff's objections uh, to Diaz's declaration are sustained to the extent the statements clearly conflict with his deposition testimony, and they are also sustained to the extent Diaz provides reasons for employment actions that he states he does not know or does not remember during his deposition. Close quote. As for the expert report, that the defendant relied on to fill in memory gaps of uh, Diaz himself, in which the expert also apparently acknowledged that he hadn't even reviewed Diaz's deposition, informing his expert opinions as to Diaz's motives, the court said the following, quote, The evidence before the court is that Diaz does not remember the reasons for his employment decisions, and Brady, that's the expert, has provided reasons. While Brady may testify about factors that officers consider when making these employment decisions, he cannot testify about why Diaz made a particular decision. The issue in this case, the court said, is not whether Brady, the expert, can come up with a legitimate reason that a law enforcement officer may have taken these actions. It's whether Diaz had a legitimate reason to take the employment actions or if he instead did so because the plaintiffs did not support his political campaign. Close quote. The bottom line here is that the defendant, Diaz, in my view, lost a valuable opportunity to fill in these gaps at his deposition 
and as a result, at least some of the plaintiffs succeeded in defeating his motion for summary judgment. Okay, stepping away from the Diaz case for the moment, I want to talk briefly about another very similar case that also came out three days ago, King versus Kings County Sheriff's Office, of course, in the show notes. There, a California judge granted a defense motion to strike at least portions of a four-page errata sheet that contained 42 changes to the deposition testimony of the plaintiff's expert. In the King decision, the court said that the errata sheet consisted of both corrective and substantive changes. Now, some of the changes were clearly very minor. For example, one entry on the errata sheet sought to change, quote, 67 hours, close quote, to six to seven hours, close quote. All right, of the 42 changes in this particular case, 11 of them were apparently not contested by the defense. But as to all other changes, the court struck every one of them. The opinion tells us that some of the entries on the errata sheet simply changed no answers to yes. Some others added qualifiers to prior testimony, such as changing answers from a simple yes to yes if, and then providing additional narrative, or a prior no answer to no, assuming that, dot, dot, dot. And other changes still added new information entirely. The King Court cited committee notes to Federal Rule 30C1 saying that while the language of the rule permits corrections in form or substance, this permission does not properly include changes offered solely to create the material factual dispute in a tactical attempt to evade an unfavorable summary judgment. What we know from looking at the changes to the errata sheet in King, just like what we know from the Lumen case, is that the changes appeared to consist entirely of testimony that follow-up examination of the deponents in the deposition itself would likely have ferreted out. I don't have the sense from reading the expert's errata sheet in King, the California case, that the expert there was intentionally trying to deceive anyone. Rather, it seemed that the changes were intended to make his testimony more precise and nuanced. In turn, those changes were naturally something that the examining lawyer would have explored if those nuances had surfaced during the original deposition testimony. One might even ponder whether the expert in King understood how depositions work and that the deposition is the place to be as precise as possible and that adding nuance later on in reflection about the testimony, might actually result in an order nullifying uh, those reflections or nuances. So that's King versus Kings County Sheriff's Office. There's just one other case in the show notes that we've cited for you on the same point. That's the Sinclair Wyoming refinery case issued by the 10th Circuit in 2021. There, the court rejected an errata sheet by applying what the 10th Circuit calls the Burns-Franks test. That three-part test is instructive for you, even if it isn't binding outside the Tenth Circuit, because it kind of collects and codifies the key factors that courts look at. So under the Burns-Franks test, the court asks, one, whether the deponent was cross-examined during his earlier testimony, meaning was there an effort to clarify any potential inaccuracies while the deposition was in progress? Two, whether the deponent had access to the pertinent evidence at the time of his earlier testimony, or whether the changes to deposition testimony are based on newly discovered evidence. And three, whether the earlier testimony reflected confusion by the deponent, which the errata sheet 
is attempting to explain. In declining in that case, in the Sinclair case, in declining to allow the errata sheet, the court walked through those three elements, saying, first, the deponent could have been cross-examined by his own lawyer to correct errors during the deposition and wasn't. Further, the witness did not appear confused in the least in giving the original answers. And finally, uh, to add an interesting twist, the court said it doesn't really matter whether the corrected testimony aligns with the objectively correct information or subjective evidence. In other words, the court is saying that even if the witness's answer was clearly factually wrong, and even if the change aligns the testimony with what is in fact true, it doesn't matter because what mattered is what the witness, what the deponent believed to be true when the testimony was given. All right, so what to make of all this? Well, maybe this widely held notion that it's important to get the client or deponent out of the room the moment the adversary finishes questioning isn't really a one-size-fits-all rule. It's so widespread that it's almost the stuff of folklore, I think, that this is the right thing to do. But my view is different. If, as you sat there, you realized that your witness was using I don't know or I don't remember as a crutch to the point where it seems like it's become a convenient way for the deponent to shorten the deposition, it's really important to use your opportunity for follow-up examination, either with uh, more pointed questions or with documents, to fill in those gaps before that deposition closes. Yes, the opposing lawyer is likely to squawk a bit by saying to the witness on their recross or redirect, you just told me you didn't remember, or you just said something different. But it's better to fix that then legitimately than to have both the opposing lawyer and the judge taking issue with the clarified testimony. If your client otherwise did well during the deposition, it's not likely that you're going to open a can of worms with some substantive follow-up examination, which is to say a fairly straightforward examination by an adversary is not likely to now turn into a bloodbath in the ordinary case. So whether you prep your witness ahead of time, at least on the key issues, whether you use more refined questions to get the testimony you need out of your witness or client, or whether you use documents, you've really got to think as the deposition is unfolding whether your client is committing errors that could legitimately be corrected with your follow-up. Once you let the deposition close with material gaps in your claims or defenses, you're likely to have a problem. You're then going to have to fill those gaps in with an errata sheet, an affidavit or declaration, same basic thing, or fix it at trial. And if you do that, you run the risk of some very damaging impeachment examination in front of the jury. Now, sometimes the gaps in testimony are caused by the questions that the noticing lawyer asked. Sometimes the questions are designed to skip critical points that would better explain the answers that have been given. They're designed to create holes in your client's testimony. As for my practice, I frequently follow up with additional questions to ensure that I don't have to rely on an errata sheet or an affidavit to tell the whole, complete, accurate story. So my supplement to the testimony is always going to be my follow-up examination in the deposition itself. As I've said a few times over the years, the deposition transcript is the ultimate errata sheet. All right, let's wrap up. The point here is that in all three of these court rulings, Lumen, King, and Sinclair, Wyoming, the courts rejected changes that likely could have been corrected with follow-up examination during the deposition. 
And two of those rulings came out in the last 72 hours. So they really reflect the current thinking among many judges and many courts on the topic of errata sheets. All right, that's it for today. As always, thank you so much for listening and we'll talk to you again next time.